Well, good morning. It's awesome to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, part of our preaching team. I'm so glad that you're with us here today. Um, and man, last week was just something worth celebrating and worth thanking the Lord for um, as we celebrated our 15th anniversary and uh, launched as Ironwood Church. It was really cool. I've been hearing some stories of people who uh, gave their life to Christ this past week. Uh, other people who have recommitted their lives to Christ, um, which is awesome. Yeah, you can praise the Lord for that. And, uh, and we just had a, a bunch of people here. All three services were very well attended. Uh, and so thank you for your part in that. We actually uh, set a, an attendance record for uh, a Sunday. You know, we had more people here last Sunday than any Sunday ever in the history of our church besides Easter or Christmas. So uh, that's pretty cool. And uh, yeah, we can thank the Lord for that. Um, you know, we, we aren't all about the numbers, but each number represents a person and we are all about helping people meet Jesus. And so every little bit of that counts. And so, um, yeah, it was just a, a really good day. And then in the afternoon, we had the funeral in this room for Will Scallon. And uh, this room was packed, about 800 people, a lot of young people, and uh, Jesus was exalted, and uh, the gospel was shared, and I think Will and his family were honored, and uh, it, it just reminds me, like, that is the work of the church, right? The scripture tells us we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We're always, as the people of God, sorrowful and always rejoicing, right? That's, that's just the mixture of what we do. We realize we're in a fallen and a broken and a hurting world, and yet we have the hope of Christ, and we live in the midst of that tension. So this is week two of our uh, series uh, called Confronting Genesis, uh, where what we're doing each week is uh, trying to answer some of the big questions that we have about our life and our world and take them to the scripture. You know, some questions are unanswerable. There's just some questions that's like, I, there's not a good answer for, for this. Like, like for example, uh, one kids ask a lot, why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? Unanswerable question. Or what about this? Maybe you've never thought of this. What do you call a male ladybug? That's an unanswerable question. Or what about this one? If traveling at the speed of light and you turn on your headlights, what happens? I don't know. How do you figure that out? And then the big theological question, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Uh, unanswerable. Who knows? Um, some questions are answerable, but you have to ask the right person. Uh, we were in Juarez a couple months ago with my family, and uh, we're there at the border crossing, and we're sitting in the van waiting for everything to just be processed as we head down to help build a home and do some work with our friends there in missions ministries. And my dad's in the van next to me, and he's just peppering me with questions. He sees a bird, and he goes, what kind of bird is that? And I'm like, Dad, do I look like a zoologist? I don't, it, it's a bird at the border. I don't know what to tell you. Like, it, uh, right? So, so we, here's the thing. We got to take our questions to the right place. And that's what we're trying to do in this series. There's ultimate questions about life. There's things that we have to try to understand about what is it to be human and where did we come from and what is the purpose and why is the world so screwed up and is there any hope and how do we fix it and what does the Bible have to say about human dignity and about sexuality and about gender and about evil and about suffering and about judgment and about all these sorts of things. And so we're taking those big questions and we're bringing them to the right place. We're not just asking some Yahoo on Google about it. We're, we're taking them to the scriptures. So that's what we're going to try to do here in this series. Now, here's what I want you to keep in mind as we look at Genesis is, is a couple things. First, Genesis doesn't answer all our initial questions, but it does answer our ultimate ones. 
It doesn't answer all of our, especially our immediate questions. There's things we come, even especially with Genesis 1, we go, well, how did this work? And how did that work? And, how, and, and Genesis isn't always interested in answering our initial questions. It is interested in answering our ultimate ones. Secondly, Genesis is less about how the world was made and more about why. It's more about why. So here's where we're going today in this message, Christianity and science. Um, First, we're going to just try to break down Genesis 1, try to just make sure we understand. We we just read it. We spent a lot of time reading it. Go, what was it saying? What what was really going on there in Genesis 1? We want to break that down. Then we want to really explore what does Genesis 1 tell us about who God is? God is actually mentioned 35 times in Genesis 1. That seems important. Who is God according to this? And then finally, we want to interact and and think about what's the relationship then between Christianity and science? That seems to be an important question these days. So that's where we're going to go. So first, how can we understand Genesis 1? Now, here's what you got to understand. Believe it or not, I actually do prepare these sermons. Uh, I study pretty hard and I read and I compile and I edit a ton. There's so many things I'd love to tell you all the time that I don't, it just never makes it in the sermon. And, uh, you know, a passage like this, Genesis 1, it's a long passage. And so I was reading a ton this week and studying and really trying to go, okay, how do I communicate this and synthesize this in a way that still leaves time to talk about these other things? And I had these great diagrams of, you know, the six days. And I was kind of working on all this way to explain it. And then I watched this video by the Bible Project. And I was like, well, dang it. Uh, Because they just did everything I would try to do but a lot better in a lot shorter period of time. Now, one of the biblical virtues is uh, humility, which means, you know, sometimes when you see someone do it better than you, you just let them do it better than you. And so uh, to look at this first thing, how do we understand Genesis 1? I want to have us together watch this video from the Bible Project. Great resources as you look to understand and study the scriptures. Um, And here's a visual commentary they do on Genesis 1 uh, to help us understand that. So uh, take a look. The first book in the Bible is called Genesis. And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out. Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, your Bible translation might say the heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land. The ground below us. Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which starts in the next line. And it reads, now the land was wild and waste. This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing. And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is ruach, 
which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes. And this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah. Every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2 that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days one through three, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then on days four through six, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay. So the first realm of order begins with light on day one. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food. Now, over and over, God says what he created was good. But then after making humans, God says that it is very good. Yes, humanity is the climax of days one through six, and their importance is explained in the first poem in the Bible. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like the other land creatures, but they're also more. They're God's image, which means that together, men and women embody and represent the creator within his creation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the creatures. This is the purpose of being God's image, to oversee creation as God's partners and representatives in the world. Very cool. Now, after the six days, we get a concluding line that links back to the key words of the opening line. And so we're completed, the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Except there's one more day. It stands outside the pattern of days one through six, 
It's the big climax. And God completed on the seventh day the work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. So God rests on the seventh day. This is a standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in his sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. Now that phrase, there was evening and morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. That's right. The seventh day has no end. That's because Genesis 1 is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos. A place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. Yes, the seventh day is the goal of creation. It's actually so important that the author of Genesis 1 has woven the number seven into every part of the story. There are seven days of creation, seven announcements that creation is good. There are seven Hebrew words in the opening verse, and then two times seven Hebrew words in verse two. And then the statement about the seventh day has three lines of seven words. Wow. So the first page in the Bible is doing way more than just telling us how the world was made. Right. Genesis 1 has been designed to show us that God's purpose is to share creation with his images so they can rest and rule it with him forever. And that purpose is what the rest of the biblical drama is all about. There you have it. Hey, you can clap for me, I guess. I don't know. Way to show that video, Luke. Yeah, like Isn't that good? I mean, it's so helpful. And, uh, and I just thought, yeah, like what a, what a great way to just kind of visually see what's going on in this book. I, I mean, just, just this is a side point. A lot of times people have this idea that the, the authors of scripture were kind of, you know, knuckle-dragging mouth breathers who like could barely perform a sentence. And yet the Bible, even from the very first page, is just filled with artistry and intentionality. The author is trying to communicate something. The author, in this case, Moses, he's trying to say something. He's saying it brilliantly. So that's how we understand Genesis 1. Let's consider next, what does Genesis 1 tell us about God? As I mentioned, uh, 35 times in only 34 verses, Genesis 1 mentions God. So God's the main attraction. God's the person we should learn about and learn from. And so here's what Genesis 1 tells us about God. First, that God is powerful. God is powerful. 10 times here in Genesis 1, it says, God said, and then it was so, right? God says something and it happens. God creates uh, what theologians have called ex nihilo. That's the Latin term that means out of nothing. Here's what that means, is that God didn't just assemble the world or make the world or form the world out of some existing stuff. He made it out of nothing. That's what God did. There's actually other Hebrew words for making or forming. And that, that, those are words where, where human beings or sometimes God will take something that exists and, and form or shape or make something out of it. That's not what's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created is a word that is always and only used of God. Get this, God on Christmas morning didn't open up a creation Lego set and then set about putting it together. God spoke and the Lego set came into existence. Notice this as well, that God's creative power always comes through his word. That is how God creates the world, that is how God recreates new life in us. We are uh, born again through the living and abiding word of God. When, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, it's because the word of Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. 
right? It is the word of God that creates new life. It is the word of God that makes us new. And so here's what I want to encourage you this year is if this is a year where you say, I want new power, I want new creativity, I need some new hope, I need some new direction, I need a new path. Here's what I want you to do is don't just look within, look to the word of God. It is the word of God that will make you new. It is the word of God that has the power to create new life and new habits and new creativity and new hope, something new in your life. The word of God has the power to do that because God is powerful. Secondly, God is profound. God is profound. I mean, creation is not just like, oh yeah, that's good. Oh, that's even very good. If you look at the details of creation and what God made, it is vibrant. And it is glorious, and it just kind of makes you go, whoa, who could think of that? Like, for example, the mandarin fish found in the Pacific near Australia. Wow! God could have just picked any one of those colors, but he'd put them all together. Or what about this, the dead leaf butterfly from southern Asia that in order to camouflage itself looks like a dead leaf. Boy, God's clever. Or what about this from Malaysia, the exploding ant? This is, a, this is an incredible thing, this Malaysian exploding ant. Uh, what, it, what happens is you're at the ant is part of the colony, and there's times when a, a, a predator of some sort will come, you know, a spider or some other thing will come and threaten uh, the, the colony. And in that case, this exploding ant will, will rise up its hind end and internally combust and detonate itself and spray poison out sacrificing itself for the good of the colony. Who could think of that? What it might be like to, for someone to sacrifice themselves for the good of everyone else and then actually embed it into an ant you've never heard of? God could, because God is profound. There's also the hairy frog. This one's fun. This is from Central Africa. Uh, this hairy frog is also known as the wolverine frog because one of the things it will do when it's under threat is it will actually break its own bones in its little hands there, and those bones then will pop out as claws, which it, like X-Men's wolverine, can then use to attack predators, the wolverine frog, the hairy frog. I mean, this is amazing. God is profound. So there's the mandarin fish and the butterfly and the ant and the hairy frog. And then the pinnacle of God's animal kingdom, your dog, right? I mean, isn't your dog just the best? And you just go, wow, Lord, you just did it here. And I mean, oh, come here. You know, like it's just God's profound. He's powerful. He's profound. Third, God is personal. God's personal. The, the account of Genesis is not the account of some impersonal force, but rather the thoughtful and intentional and loving God who even is making humanity in his image. That's what we'll talk more about next week, what it is to have human dignity because we're made in the image of God. This is a, this is a creation that feels personal. It feels like it was handmade. It feels like it was crafted on purpose. It doesn't feel random. It doesn't feel impersonal. It's a personal creation. And then even more, as you look at the rest of the biblical story, is that God then personally enters his creation in Jesus. The account of Jesus has all these echoes of Genesis 1. Here's what it says in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is personal, and he's entered into this creation story in Jesus. On a hill he created, the light of the world was abandoned in darkness to die because God wasn't content to be a watchmaker who just set the world into motion and stepped back. No, 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 no. He upholds the universe, it says, by the word of his power. I heard an incredible interview this week with an astronaut from the International Space Station. She's a believer in Christ. And she says she looks at the world and just sees this, almost like this plump, fragile blue baby is what she sees from space. And she realizes that that the only reason that it doesn't collapse in on itself is because of God's personal holding it together. God's powerful, God's profound, God's personal, and God is also purposeful. God's purposeful, and that's really what this is about. This is, this is less about trying to detail the exact way and the exact timeline and the exact mechanism of how exactly everything came into being. There's lots more questions that we have uh, from when we read Genesis 1 uh, than it seems to answer, but what this is really trying to show us is that God is purposeful. God is taking, uh, he's creating order rather than chaos. He's a God of predictability. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God of steadiness. He's a God of order. Now again, this doesn't answer all of our questions about the origins of the world. But we have to ask, well, what kind of a story is Genesis 1 trying to tell? So uh, think about it this way. This is a word picture I I got from Dr. John Walton from uh, Wheaton College. He, He says this, imagine I came to you and I said to you, hey, tell me the origins of where you live. You know where you live right now? Tell me the origins of, of where you live. Now, there's two ways to tell that story. One way is you could, if I said, tell me the origins of where you live, you could tell a house story. You could tell me about the house. You could tell me about the year it was built. You could tell me about how they laid the foundation, uh, what kind of wood they used, what the siding was like, what the roof was like, what the plumbing and the electricity. And you could tell me a house origin story of the place you live. On the other hand, you could tell me a home origin story. And you could say, you know, when I see this house, here's what I see. This is what this room is for. And this is what that room is for. And this is who's going to stay in this place. And this is what we're going to call these different rooms. And this is where we're going to put the furniture. And this is how it's going to feel. Both of those are totally okay ways to answer the, 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 the prompt, tell me the origins of the place you live. Now, here's the thing. Modern scientific culture is usually asking for a house story. Moses and the biblical authors are providing a home story. So it's like, that's just not even the questions it's trying to answer. It's trying to tell you, here's the purpose. Here's the design. This is why uh, for us as a church, as Ironwood Church, and this has been the case for 15 years, we have not taken a strong uh, position about the age of the earth. Right, this is something lots of faithful Christians have debated, uh, even going back to St. Augustine, 
Uh, he has a, a whole thing he wrote about, uh, you know, a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, which most of you who like a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 would hate what he said about it, right? And, and so there's, it's been this kind of in-house, intermural debate among Christians, uh, some who believe in a very young earth, that maybe the earth is 6,000 years old, and that Genesis 1 represents this really literal uh, kind of 24 hour, you know, six 24-hour days. Other people have, you know, a different approach where it's like, hey, this actually uh, fits into something that's millions of years old. And here's the thing, faithful Christians, now if you have real strong opinions about this, you won't believe me, but, but you, you should believe me. Faithful Christians, there are faithful Christians who hold both views. And so here's what we've said. We've said as a church, that's not a hill to die on for us. We're not going to say, hey, you can only be a, a member here in good standing if you believe just this. We've seen it as an open hand issue. Here's what it says in our membership packet. It says, while we believe the age of the earth to be an open-handed issue, we do not believe in atheistic or naturalistic evolution. Here's what that means. The key issue for us is that God did it. The key issue for us is not how he did it, it's that he did it. And if you embrace any kind of like, well, the world just sort of happened without God, well, then that's where you draw the line. You can't be a member here. You can keep coming, but you're not going to be able to be in a position of leadership or agreement with us as a, as a church. It, but but so hopefully you understand that. The, the point is that God, God did it because God is powerful and profound and personal and purposeful. Now that leads us to this question related to science. How do Christianity and science fit together? And so I want to recommend a book to you um, that isn't just about science. It's actually about a lot of different issues that people have questions about related to Christianity. It's called Confronting Christianity. It's by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, it's an excellent book. The subtitle is 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Um, and uh, just, I, I think the way she approaches this is overall very helpful. Uh, I love everything about the book. There's only one book that I believe everything in. Uh, that's this one. Um, but, not, uh, but, but anyway, it's a very helpful book. And uh, some of what I'm going to share as it relates to this comes out of her book. And so I wanted to give her credit uh, for that. And here's what I want to argue in this question, how do Christianity and science fit together? I want to argue that Christianity needs science and science needs Christianity. Christianity needs science to better understand God's world. This is the world God made. We should go learn about it. And science needs Christianity to understand what science can't answer, which is a lot. So here's some ways to think about this relationship. The first one is this. Faith in God provides good reason to do science. Believing in God, believing in this Genesis story provides good reason to do science. Many of the earliest scientists were Christians. And here's why, because they believed that God had created an orderly, predictable world. They believed that God had created a blueprint that could be discerned through inquiry and questioning and research. And so it makes all the sense in the world that the earliest people pushing for more scientific discovery were Christians going, God's amazing. <laughs> Have you seen this place? We should learn more about it. Let me give you some examples of these Christians. In the 12 and 1300s, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham were Christians who laid the foundation for, science, for the scientific method, which was then picked up and established and popularized in 1620 by Francis Bacon. Uh, no relation to Kevin as far as I know. <laughs> but he said, hey, based on what we see about the orderliness of God, there's a predictability that we, if we test things with this scientific method, it should produce the same results because God's orderly. 
Physicist Robert Boyle was a Christian in the 1600s who coined Boyle's Law. He almost became a pastor, but thought he could serve Jesus better as a scientist. I want to say maybe there's someone here today and you're trying to figure out your career path. And, and maybe this is actually God saying, hey, go serve me in science and engineering and technology and discovery. Galileo in the 1600s, he was a Christian. And what got him in trouble wasn't that he believed that planets were orbiting the sun. It was that he was a lay person making theological arguments about it. And the Catholic Church didn't like that. But he was a Christian scientist. Lord Kelvin established the Kelvin unit of temperature. But you remember your Bunsen burners from uh, high school? Uh, he was the president of the Christian Evidence Society. John Abercrombie was a Scottish Christian and a physician who wrote the first textbook on neuropathology. George Lemaitre was a Belgian Catholic priest. He was an astronomer and a cosmologist. And here's what's really interesting. In the early 1900s, he, as a, as a Catholic, was the first person to propose that the, or, that the origin of the universe was actually through a big bang. Came out of a Christian tradition. Now, here, here's, here's where this gets so interesting. The atheists of his day totally opposed the idea of a big bang because... They said, well, if there's a big bang, that suggests that there was a beginning and that there was a designer or a God who began it. And at that time, atheists believed in the steady state theory, which was the idea that the universe had just always eternally existed. And it was actually a Christian who said, you know, maybe as I observe the expanding universe, perhaps the way God did it was this. And atheists said, no, you're crazy. Albert Einstein, he was not a Christian, but he kept three pictures of scientific heroes on his desk. One was Isaac Newton. Might have heard of him. He formulated the laws of gravity. What you may not know is that he actually wrote more theology than he did science. Or Michael Faraday, who studied electromagnetism, and he wrote this, I cannot doubt that a glorious discovery in natural knowledge and the wisdom and power of God in the creation is awaiting our age. The third picture Einstein had was of James Clerk Maxwell, who was one of the first people to bring together magnetism, electricity, and light, and who was also an elder in his local church. It's not just people from history, though. It's also people today, like Dr. Jing Kong, who's an electrical engineering and computer science professor at MIT. She grew up an atheist, but turned to follow Christ in graduate school. And she says, the research is only a platform for me to do God's work. His creation, the way he made this world, is very interesting. It's amazing, really. Dr. Russell Cowburn's an expert in nanotechnology and a professor of experimental physics at Cambridge. He proclaims about his work in the field of nanotech, God got there first. Na nature is full of nanotechnology. Dr. Dean Daniel Hastings, the head of the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT, he says, there's a God who created the universe and he's not an impersonal God. He's declared himself as a loving God who seeks a relationship with us. And Dr. William Newsom's a professor of neurobiology at Stanford. He says, your faith should be informed by science. It should not be replaced by science. Science can't bear that weight. Now, faith in God provides good reason to do science. God made an orderly world. We should study it. But, as Newsom said, science can't bear the weight of your faith. And that leads us to the second thing we need to see as we think about this relationship of Christianity and science is that science still requires a leap of faith. See, science does a great job of answering all these questions of, well, what, what is this and how and 
and you know, sequencing of things and what would happen if we did it again. But, but science still can't, when you think about the origin of the universe, science has no answer for that. Right now, scientists would totally embrace the Big Bang Theory. You go, well, what kicked it off? What started it? And here's the thing, no one knows. And so what do they have to do? They have to take a leap of faith. How about this? This is really interesting. Martin Rees, who's a professor at Cambridge and a world-class astronomer, he wrote a book called Just Six Numbers, The Deep Forces That Shape the Universe. And he argues that there's these six numbers. Here's one example of them. Uh, One of these numbers would be uh, the ratio of the strength of electromagnetism to the strength of gravity. We all know what he's talking about there, of course. But apparently, if you take the ratio of the strength of electromagnetism to the strength of gravity, that calculates some like really detailed number. And what Reese argues is that there's actually six similar kinds of numbers that when you look at at the world the way it is, and here's what he says, that these six numbers, if any one of them were different, and they are finely tuned, like point lots of numbers. They're so finely tuned, but he says if any of them were even just one little bit different, the universe as we know it would not exist or support life. Now, here's, what's, here's where it gets real interesting. Reese is not a Christian, Martin Reese. And so in his book, he goes, okay, well then, how did these six numbers just happen to be exactly right to support life the way it is on this planet? How do you explain it? And so he offers three possible hypotheses. One is, it's just pure chance. And he says that's unlikely. True. The second is, God did it. And he says there's plenty of respectable scientists who believe that. The third, which is what he believes, is that there's actually close to an almost infinite number of parallel universes, think multiverse, And in every universe, these six numbers exist, but it just so happened that we happened to land in the one that had the exact right ones, and that's what he believes. Sounds rock solid, doesn't it? (laughs) Right, here's what I want you to see. Everybody's taking a leap of faith. Right, so so anyone that wants to tell you, I believe in science, I believe in proof, I believe in evidence. Okay, but you're still taking a leap of faith. Here's what Nobel-winning physicist William Phillips, who is a Christian, here's what he says. He says, I see an orderly, beautiful universe in which nearly all physical phenomena can be understood from a few simple mathematical equations. I see a universe that, had it been constructed slightly differently, would never have given birth to stars and planets, let alone bacteria and people, and there's no good scientific reason for why the universe should not have been different. Many good scientists have concluded from these observations that an intelligent God must have chosen to create the universe with such beautiful, simple, and life-giving properties. Many other equally good scientists are nevertheless atheists. Both conclusions are positions of faith. Both conclusions are positions of faith. Science still requires a leap of faith. And here's the third thing we need to consider as we think about this relationship between Christianity and science is that science can't answer why. It can answer what? It can answer how. It can use DNA and other things to go, here's who, but it can't answer why. Let me give you one example, and this is a admittedly intense example. It's observed that male primates in the animal kingdom 
regularly assault female ones. Now, in the scientific understanding, humanity is just primates. So let me ask you this question. In the scientific world, male primates regularly assault female ones. So here's the question. Is it wrong then for men to assault women? Class. <laughs> is it wrong? Heck yeah. Now, on what basis? If we're just primates, if this is just strong eat the weak, survival of the fittest, sorry ladies, get in the gym. <laughs> but that's appalling. Listen, science can't answer why. Science can tell us why men might have the urge to be violent. Science can also tell us what the effects will be on the tribe if there's lots of violent men. But science can't call it wrong. It can't say that's morally wrong. And yet there's something in all of us that has a sense of morality. We believe there are things that are right and that are wrong. And science can't deliver it. Science can't answer why do we exist? What does it mean to be human? Is there meaning in this life? How will evil and suffering be overcome? What's the matter with people? Is there hope for the human race? What happens after I die? Science can't answer those questions, but the Bible does. And that's what we're gonna to continue to push into as we look at the God who made it all and who entered into it so that he could give us hope in life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonder of your world. And God, we pray that we could look around today the sun and at the clouds and at the grass and at our dog and at our kids and at the skies and at the sunset later and that it would just put us in a place of awe and worship. God, thank you that you're faithful and trustworthy. You have a purpose and a plan and thank you that you're always good. We pray in Christ's name.